Hello, and welcome to Dr. M's Women and Children First podcast. I am your host, Dr. M, and today we're going to be looking at journal club number two. I have the pleasure, again, of having Andrew Brackens, fourth-year medical student, on the show. And this time, we're going to discuss his topics of interest, concussions, or otherwise known as traumatic brain injury, omega-3 fatty acids, and how they affect the brain, neuroinflammation in general, and healing, and also some basic discussions on helmets and how they help in concussion. So today's going to be a pretty quick intro. I'm just going to get us right into the discussion. Good morning, Andrew. Welcome back. We're excited to start round two of our journal club. And today, I think you had the desire to talk about omega-3 fats, concussions, and then some uh, last-minute recommendations for helmets. So welcome. Yeah, thank you so much. And glad that we could do this again. Been looking forward to it for a little bit. All right, so I'm going to turn you loose. Tell me about concussions. What do we know about them? How do they happen? What's the pathophysiology for the other med students and other providers listening to this podcast? And let's just go down the list. Yeah. Um, so at the risk of getting off topic, but I do think that it's important to kind of hear where like inspiration for the topic came from. So I had the pleasure of spending some time with Dr. Christian Turner. He's the, to my knowledge, the only specific pediatric sports med doc in like the Charlotte region, if not the state, don't quote me on that, but I got uh, the chance to rotate with him. And, uh, as you would imagine, a large portion of his patient population came to see him for concussions. Um, and with it being in the spring, we had a lot of soccer players, a lot of, you know, spring football, um, but a lot of soccer. And I was just very much, uh, I don't know, struck by how, prevalent this thing was. Um, and so got me interested in like, how can we treat these kids better or differently, or what's the research on all this kind of stuff. So that kind of started my dive into looking into like ways to help mitigate and treat. Um, and then your podcast episode with Dr. Sandy on ADHD, he dropped uh, a lot of great information as far as nutrition for ADHD health, but in there, he kind of like threw in a, Oh, by the way, omega threes have been shown to work super well with traumatic brain injuries and concussions. And so that was kind of the spark that, that got me interested in it. And now as we're going into summer with kids being home from school, they start going to the pool at different sports camps, away camps, biking, literally just around, you know, the neighborhood, a lot more outdoor activity, hopefully, um, which is awesome. But that has, you know, the increased risk of, of injury. And um, I was checking the stats and back in like 26, it was estimated anywhere from like 1.6 to 3.8 million sports related concussions occurred just in the U S which doesn't include any of the like mild brain injuries that occur off the playing field, like hitting your head, jumping on the trampoline or, or something right. like that. So that's kind of, that's kind of what got me started on this. Yeah. Did, did, did the physician you're working with give you any uh, uh, knowledge base around his, his concussion disease on the rise? I know we are more awareness about it, but is it just more awareness or is it, actually a physical increase in the amount of people who are having traumatic brain problems. 
I do think, and, and we didn't talk like in great detail, but we had a couple of kind of side conversations and he, he thinks it's just, we are recognizing it. Like it's, it's, we're more aware of it. Um, and it's garnering more valid attention from schools in particular. Um, and, with the rise in just awareness, parents are more attuned to it. Coaches are more attuned to it. So it's, it's being uh, treated or at least diagnosed much more frequently. I would say it's kind of in, in my kind of like unofficial opinion, I don't think it's happening particularly any more commonly. It's just stuff that we used to quote unquote, you know, rub some dirt on and, and move on. It's we're, we're seeing evidence of the damage there. What would you say? Yeah, I, I would agree. I think, you know, the only possibility for me that we may have a little increase in volume, maybe just the, the sheer increase in muscle ability and sports ability in athletes now, and they're faster, stronger. So maybe there's more force equals mass times acceleration, right? So we might have more, more force going on because we're accelerating faster and we have more mass because bodies are bigger, especially in football. You look at the average size of, uh, you know, an NFL football player in the 1970s during the Pittsburgh Steelers dynasty. And, you know, these guys were 250, 260. That's small now. So I start to think, okay, well, this is trickling down all the way to the high school age where we're seeing bigger kids, stronger kids. So to me, there's probably an increase as well based on just straight physics. But I think the awareness piece is probably the bigger piece. Yeah, totally. Um, and so I guess with that, uh, diving into kind of like what, what a concussion actually is, um, the most recent, if we want to get technical with like the definitions, um, there's a, uh, international conference on concussion in sport, which happens. Um, and they kind of hemmed and hawed about it and basically came down to that sports related concussion is a brain injury traumatically induced by biomechanical force to the body, most often directly to the head, which results in temporary impairment of normal neurologic functions. Not a huge bit of surprise in my opinion on that. It's basically you get hit, your brain either undergoes direct impact or this, uh, if you hear the term coup, counter coup, like just the whiplash brain gets damaged and you end up with some like neurologic, um, damage there. Um, and we'll talk about the pathophys here next. Um, but I think one of the more frustrating things, depending on what the situation is, is that it's still a largely like, uh, symptomatic and clinical diagnosis. Um, because none of our imaging tests are going to show anything weird. Um, there's not currently like lab values that people are drawing to make diagnosis. It's a, do you have, and then list off certain symptoms. And if you meet a certain threshold, that's what, kind of, what are those symptoms? Like what's a, what's a traditional symptom of somebody with a concussion? Yeah. So if you are, um, if the patient's reporting uh, symptoms, they're going to complain of headache or pressure, nausea, vomiting after the event, balance problems, dizziness, uh, you know, light and noise are really bothersome to them as far as the headache's concerned. Um, sluggish, hazy, they just kind of feel like blah. But one of the, the bigger things that um, that teachers notice in particular is the kids have really, really, really difficult time with focusing, concentration, remembering things, 
performing on tests. Um, it's just kind of, you know, that, that type of picture. Um, yeah. And let's put a bookmark in that part, because I think that's going to be really interesting. We talk about the pathophysiology of why the brain is losing that normal computational ability, the thinking ability, because I think that's interesting. And also, you know, from a parent perspective, your physician should be asking you questions around red flags. Like what are the red flag symptoms, you know, that, that says, Hey, my kid's in trouble. So headaches that are worsening is one that I always think of neck pain. So has mm -hmm. your neck been injured, slurred speech, repetitive vomiting, first am vomiting, right? Somebody who, you know, can't think at all, like doesn't recognize normal people and places, um, their confusion is getting worse and worse rapidly. Those are all things, you know, that to me would say, okay, we're not dealing with just a base concussion here. You need to take this a step further. And those are the do not pass goes. And so anytime somebody goes to the physician after a head injury and you have any of these red flag symptoms, that's, that's a, a point of pause that we need to go a little bit deeper, uh, maybe needing an actual scan or something. All right. So, so let's talk about the pathophysiology. What is going on? So you hit your head, something happens. Yeah. And so, um, this was laid out super well um, by an article written by uh, Aaron Barrett um, and Michael McBurney. Um, and their whole focus in this was talking about how um, we can actually help some of these symptoms, but they do a, a great job of like explaining the mechanism. So at baseline, you get injured, you're on the football field, you get hit, or you go up for a header and you collide with another soccer player. Um, when that happens, just very simply the axons or the, 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 your brain cells, the membranes get stretched. Okay. So we have a, a stress on the outer membrane of those brain cells. Okay. And so when that happens, what we have is certain pumps are in the walls of our brain cells that help ions flow. So it's like sodium, potassium, calcium. It's like the way that our cells communicate with each other and the way that they interact with the rest of your body to tell it to do stuff. So you have these channels in that membrane. Well, that when that gets stretched, it causes some of those channels to get dysregulated, right? There's stress put on their structure. So what happens is we have calcium that normally hangs out outside of the cell, just rushes in. Okay. And what calcium does when everything's normal, your cells, when they want to do something, they let a little calcium in to activate whatever it is the cell does. Well, in this case, when we have the dysregulation and you have a flood of calcium, we just have neurons releasing neurotransmitters like glutamate, uh, dopamine, some other things at just complete a flood of that. Okay. And so you have some cognitive issues due to that, like you, cause you don't have scheduled regulated firing of brain cells. Right. Okay. So calcium comes in. Now all of our cells are just like on full go immediately. Um, and then your body recognizes, wait a minute, that's like, everything's not supposed to be firing at the same time. So to try to control that, cells will start to use massive amounts of energy to ramp up the pumps to get the calcium back out or to just like balance out the way the ions are supposed to be. Okay. So they make a ton of ATP, which is the cells, you know, the power source for cells. And so we have this hypermetabolic upregulated state as cells try to like re- um, kind of balance everything out, which is great, except for 
this super high demand that happens really quickly puts the mitochondrium in the cells, which is what produces ATP into overdrive. And so they start putting out a ton of ATP, but it's not at, it's not without putting out other harmful byproducts like lactic acid, um, oxygen radicals. Um, and so we're putting out energy, but also putting out a little bit of toxin every time that we're doing that, which damages DNA, damages cell membranes, damages mitochondrial walls, which kind of makes the rest of, of the brain angry. Um, and yeah, then, sort of like I think of a car, right? So when you need to go somewhere quickly, you use gasoline. So the preferred fuel source in this case is sugar in the brain. So use gasoline in the car, you produce all of this energy for movement. And in that case, you have to release carbon dioxide and, and, and water. And so in this case, the, the, the byproduct of that release, like you're saying from the mitochondria, which is the engine, it's releasing these reactive oxygen species, which have unpaired electrons. And so what those unpaired electrons do is they actually damage local cells. And this is gonna be important later when we start talking about how the immune system gets polarized. So, so go from there. So you're, you're using up all this glucose. You got the ATP. What happens after that? Yeah. Okay. So we're operating at this like super high level. And as would be expected, if you're sprinting, you run out of fuel eventually, right? We, we run out of that glucose because the brain literally just run out of fuel. Like you deplete the glucose stores. Okay. So what that does, and I think this is what really caught my attention when I started like hearing about how these kids with concussions are, uh, you know, one of the major things that we did in the clinic was talk with them and try to figure out how we could best work with the teachers to give them a reduced workload. Right. Um, the reason why we have trouble focusing. The reason why we have brain fog and on all this kind of stuff is that your brain literally has run out of the fuel that it normally uses to focus and take tests, just trying to like re-regulate all of your brain cells. Okay. So when we don't have that energy, you get brain fog and the decreased academic performance, the decreased attention. Um, and that also leads to, uh, uh, increased risk of re-injury if you are put in a situation before you get your brain energy back, basically, um, which is why we want to be super careful with return to play. Um, not only are you not going to feel great if you go back too soon, but because you don't have the energy you needed to repair the cells, if they happen to get damaged again, you're just kind of exacerbating the issue. But that, that approaches it kind of from the hypo metabolic state, you know, like when we run out of all of that energy, what I am interested in hearing you kind of talk about Dr. M is going back to the, the harmful byproducts that come when we start ramping up the AP, ATP production, putting out all of the uh, lactic acid, the radicals, those ions, what are, what are the things that happen from an inflammatory perspective? Um, I know that you get activation of microglial cells, which basically is just kind of like the garbage trucks of the brain. They go around and pick up all of the, the detritus. Um, and then they bring along with them a host of kind of inflammatory markers, but how would you describe kind of like what happens from an inflammatory perspective? Yeah, I think this is where it gets really interesting with who has the worst outcomes, right? So when you think about inflammation 
globally in the body, whether that's in the gut, the, the, the bloodstream or the brain. Precursor inflammatory risk, I think, is the main, other than genetic susceptibility, is the main risk factor for long-term dysfunction in head injury. And so what happens is in these situations where somebody is, is inflamed already at the get-go, and we're going to have to get into why they're inflamed because that's going to become important. But just for sake of argument, somebody has got a higher inflammatory immune polarity. They get hit in the head. These events start to occur like you state. They get this axonal damage, which is you know between the, the neuron and you have this long axon, which is what the, the electrical signal gets conducted or down and it gets stretched, right? And anytime you disrupt the homeostasis of any cell in the body, it sends an alarm signal to the local immune system. And that local immune system says, okay, something's going on here. And while that membrane disruptions occur in the excitotoxicity, the calcium, so, uh, potassium efflux switch, you get that neurotransmitter release, the hypermetabolic state, all that stuff is going on in concert with now activation of the immune system saying, hey, something bad just happened here. We need to bring in some guys to start cleaning up this mess. Who comes in? Well, like you said, microglial cells are sitting there waiting in the brain to deal with any dysfunction, whether it's a pathogen, whether it's an injury, whether it's just cleaning up old cells that need to be taken out so you can replace them with new cells, they're waiting to do that job. Macrophages are the professional antigen presenting cells, but also they're the professional cells that say, hey, I'm gonna migrate over and swallow you, whatever you are that I need to get rid of. Again, whether it's a pathogen, a disrupted cell, something. So what happens is you get this activation of different types of macrophages to come and recruit to the area of injury. Now in a concussion, it's likely it's a large area of injury globally um, because the way the head injury occurs, unless you have a direct impact to one part of the brain, that global reaction is going to have a large constituent of microglial macrophages that are recruited to the area. They, now at baseline, there's two for just argument's sake, there's, it's more than just two, but there's two polarity states for micro, macrophages. There's M1 and M2. M1 is a type that is set up to deal with pathogens primarily, right? So if you're M1 polarized heavily, you're gonna be very inflammatory. You're gonna be ready to go in, grab a bacteria or virus and burn the heck out of it by recruiting in neutrophils and inflammasomes and um, neutrophil extracellular trap mechanisms. If you're M2 type, you're more polarized to present antigen. You wanna present things to the immune system to turn on adaptive immunity and help it out. Now you need both, right? But what you don't wanna be is polarized too hard to one side or too hard to the other, right? If you're too polarized to M1, you're gonna do a lot of local damage. If you're too polarized to M2, you're gonna to present too much antigen, which could be your soft tissue you've autoimmune route. Mm. So in these cases, a lot of people who consume a highly Americanized diet, what I call highly processed, highly sugar laden, highly fat laden, you are going to be in general, based on statistics and data, polarized towards an M1 phenotype. So those macrophages that come in are highly recognized to do more inflammatory damage. So they're gonna come in and start to recruit to the area 
lots of other cells and inflammatory markers, including the release of nuclear factor kappa B, TNF alpha, uh, recruiting an IL-6, all of these cytokines that are signals going out say, hey buddy, we got a massive problem. Mm. So once that starts to happen, you get what I call a fire. And in the brain on fire is not good. And this is where fish oil or omega-3 fats is gonna come in. And I'm gonna let you go back to that in a minute and also diet. If you are hyperpolarized to be more inflammatory, you are going to do a lot of local tissue damage, right? And the process is a good one in the sense that your body wants to inflame to heal. But if you overburn, you're gonna take out more good tissue than you needed to. And that cellular damage is what leads to cognitive dysfunction, delayed return to activity, prolonged headaches. You know, I've had kids who've had headaches for six weeks post injury, right? And that could be even after their first concussion, repeated concussions, a whole nother ball of wax. So for me, the big concern is if you are already pre-polarized to an M1 phenotype for your macrophages, your microglial cells, and you have a high burden of inflammatory um, local uh, tissue cytokines already there, you're going to have a lot more tissue damage. And that tissue damage is then going to lead to all the symptoms that we see. And for me, the immune system polarity, because of the antecedent risk factors, and there's a lot of them, it's not just your omega-3 fat status, right? And, and I'd like to get into some of that. But before we, before we go down that pathway, does that answer sort of the, the inflammation question? Or do you want to dive a little deeper? No, absolutely. And that was, um, that kind of hits all the point and the your predisposition to whether or not your body's going to make a mountain out of this molehill is, is a huge, I think, thing to keep in mind because that applies not only to concussion that applies to like any time that you would, could be injured any time that you could get sick. Um, the question of why do certain kids get sick and say, stick long, stay sick longer, uh, yeah. that, that hits it in incredibly well. Yeah. And this also gets into the world of neurodegenerative diseases. You know, there's a clear risk factor for multiple traumatic brain injuries leading to neurodegenerative diseases. And I think actually when all is said and done and the research eventually finishes this, I think all, all the neurodegenerative diseases are going to be related to a combination of prolonged exposure to bad environmental and self-induced lifestyle factors that are driving this global brain inflammation coupled to infection, coupled to potentially also a lot of traumatic brain injuries or, or issues related to that. So I think it's yeah. all, like you're saying, it's a global picture. We're just focusing on one piece, the MTBI, but I think it's going to be everything in the end. And I think that it could make sense too. And I'm stepping out on a limb. There's no, I've not read any data on this, but if we look at perhaps someone who is maybe M2 polarized, um, we'll take the CTE example from all of the, the linemen who get all of these, you know, uh, within, at least within football, who get constant kind of head pounding. Let's say that someone is M2 kind of polarized um, and they're very active, but they're eating high omega-6 um, diet. They're, you know, trying to keep on weight. So they're maybe not getting the best uh, like whole food, real food type stuff. And then they continually get these like minor or little, you know, TBIs. If you're M2 polarized, then 
your body's going to start potentially attacking those brain cells because the microglia cells are over representing representing those damaged cells um and then so your body ends up wrecking your 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 brain and your nervous cells over the long term yeah so present it pr producing antibodies against your self tissue then leading to destruction of your self tissue in this case if your self tissue is your brain your neurons your you know support structures you're in big trouble and i think that's going to be part of the story of the genesis of neurodegenerative disease. I think they're going to prove that most neurodegenerative diseases are related to autoimmune autoantigen presentation, but that remains to be seen. All right. Yeah. So let's break down omega-3 and omega-6 fatty acids. What are they? Why are they called omega-3 and omega-6? And what do we know about them? Yeah. So from baseline, whenever we hear the terms omega, whatever, when it comes to fats, um, it's a way that we describe where in the carbon chain of fats, the double bond is. Um, and when I'm describing this to like my family basically say, so fats are long chains of carbons connected by, by bonds and there's hydrogens and stuff, but imagine just a long chain and every at least naturally occurring fat will have at least one kink in that chain. Um, and the omega, whatever number, is just a way to say where that kink is. Now there may be other kinks in the chain, but that's kind of the primary one is how I've explained it. Now I could be vastly oversimplifying that, but. No, I think that's right. It's the first, it's the first double bond in the link of the chain is where it gets given its moniker. So just want people to know that's why it's called an omega-3 fat, but basically they're just fat. Okay. Um, and so when we've got omega-3s versus omega-6s, um, omega-3s are ones that we're going to find more prevalently in like fish. Um, and they play big factors in kind of like creating the structure of cell membranes, which we'll get into omega-6s, um, are heavily related to the production of a thing that we call arachidonic acid. Um, and that eventually through a couple of, of processes gets turned into leukotrienes, prostaglandins, which are, are beneficial inflammatory markers, um, as well as helping like vessel dilation, blood pressure control, that kind of stuff. But the, the thing is like with most things, we need moderation. Um, and if we have an overload of the omega-6s, we get the increased inflammatory states that we've kind of talked about. And I think that's a good pause right there, because for folks to understand this, they're both important, right? So consumption of fats in general, they all have a function. It's the ratio and the volume of each that tends to be an issue. And if you think back to human history, where did people live most of the time in order to have a good access to a fuel source? And that was live near water, right? Why? Because you could fish and fish was relatively plentiful and easy to catch. So fish was a very common staple of human diets over time. The other omega-3 source comes from animals that consume lots of grass, right? So you can think about cows, if they're eating grass all the time, they were loaded with some omega-3 fat. So when you eat their meat, you'd get omega-3 fat out of it. Now, unfortunately, we corn fed our cows, which has turned it into omega-6. So it gets into some of these ratio things. But for another interesting fact is that when you think about injuries, right? And injuries cause inflammation. Why? Because inflammation is the healing process. So you sprain your ankle. What are the drugs that we use to help with pain, right? Ibuprofen, right? You look at Tylenol, 
right? Mm. These drugs, Aleve, right? The celecoxins, the COX-2 inhibitors, all of these drugs block parts of the arachidonic acid cascade, right? So your precursor, if you just think of straight uh, chemistry, you have a substrate and a product. Your substrate is omega-6 fatty acid. Your product is the downstream effect of enzymatic reactions that turn arachidonic acid into thromboxanes, prostaglandins, and leukotrienes. Well, it turns out that ibuprofen blocks this process. Why? Because when you get hyperinflamed, it hurts and you feel like it, do it doesn't feel great. So you take ibuprofen to reduce this. So when we think about any inflammatory issue in the body, you're using a lot of inflammatory blockers like ibuprofen you probably have either repetitive injuries or more likely you have a ton of fuel on board, which means your omega-6 fat volume is high. Now, again, omega-6 fats are important. You need them for inflammation, but God forbid, if you have a ton on board, that's not a good thing, right? So we think about it from that perspective, but let's, let's focus on omega-3s at this point, because I think that's where the, the, the rubber is actually meeting the road for the news to use and people making decisions. So omega-3 fats come primarily, like you said, from fish and, and from uh, seaweed, from kelp, from grass-fed animals. Mm. What does what the omega-3 fat turn into in the body? We said omega-6 turns into arachidonic acid. Where does the omega-3 go? So omega-3 actually has a bit longer of a, of a processing chain to get to its end. Um, so you go from your omega-3 and then it processes down to um, two kind of main forms. EPA and DHA. Now I'm not going to lie. You have said these actual words and I'm <laughs> going to say them. Um, I had to Google why in the world they were so long, but EPA stands for icosapentaenoic acid. Did I get that out right? Yep. And then DHA is docosahexaenoic acid. Right. I basically, I, from what I could gather, that is again, another thing that describes where certain things are in the molecule. Like right. one is 22 carbons or one's 20 carbons. Um, EPA is actually 20 and five and DHA is 22 and six. Is that a, right. a fair description? Yep. Yep. Um, and so we have these two things. So EPA and DHA. EPA happens first. You actually have to do a little bit more processing to get to DHA down the line. So EPA um, will be acted on by uh, two enzymes. You had mentioned them earlier, COX and LOX. Um, not the same and you put on bagels, but COX and LOX. <laughs> um, and you end up with EPA being turned into leukotrienes, um, but also these really, really cool particles um, that I know I've heard you, Dr. M, talk about a lot called resolvents. Um, and so that's kind of the EPA route. And then once we get down to DHA, Cox and Locks again do their, their deal. Um, but then it gets acted on one more time and it will create resolvins um, as well as protectins. So that's kind of like the end result there. Um, and the names themselves actually give a bit of a hint as to what they end up doing um, once they're processed down that low, but I'll even kind of back up to say that for DHA in particular, um, DHA is a major structural component of our actual cells. 97% um, of the omega-3 fatty acids in the brain are DHA. Um, and they quite literally, when, when we talk to moms who are pregnant, um, 
the reason that we really, really, really highlight DHA as a big factor in like making sure we're getting that in our diet or supplementation is that if you're building a baby and you're building that baby's brain, you have to give it the stuff that it needs to actually make that brain. So, yeah, it's pretty fascinating actually, when you think about that, right? So for years, breast milk was what humans consumed because there was no formula, right? Formulas are relatively recent development in the last hundred years. So humans derived all of their building blocks from their mother via breast milk and where the building blocks coming through the breast milk would come from would be mom. So if baby is feeding off of mom's breast milk, that DHA and EPA is actually being derived from mom's brain, right? So if mom's not chasing it, by giving back herself fish and other sources of DHA, mom's brain becomes less DHA and EPA rich, which I think is such a fascinating evolutionary, you know, uh, decision, you know, where we think about humans getting what they need as infants from the mother at the expense of the mother, right? That I think is so, so fascinating. And so I'm always talking to mothers about making sure they're taking fish oil or eating fish or, getting grass-fed meats or getting all of the precursor sources of replenishment for their brain so that they don't end up with mood instability. Because again, if they're losing their EPA and DHA, they may be falling down the pathway of not feeling as good while they're stressed out, sleep deprived, all those things when, when baby is, was, is finally born, right? So I think that's interesting. And of course, formulas are chasing this now adding DHA um, to, to the formula th themselves now to try and keep this stuff. And the other thing I wanted to touch on was what resolvents, protectants, and there's a third group called Maresins, M-A-R-E-S-I-N-S. They're okay. all under this new name called Specialized Pro-Resolving Lipid Mediators. And this is a huge area of research right now, especially in the functional medicine world, where guys are really talking about these lipid mediators because of their downstream effects. So let's, let's go there. What are resolvents, protectins, and, and maricins doing in the brain on a global scale? I, I can only speak to this kind of like from a broad overview. Uh, the mechanism I am still learning about, but basically that oxidative stress that we talked about earlier from all of the lactic acid and the, the oxidized species getting thrown out, um, what I've seen is that when you have kind of like elevated levels of DHA, when you have those supplements, um, it will improve the function of cleaning out damaged bits of brain cells. So, um, the, the stuff that I was reading didn't get into the mechanism of it, but levels of things like manganese superoxide dismutase, um, which is a scavenger, like its job is to come in and help clean up all of those oxidized radicals. Um, when you have DHA supplementation levels of that scavenger and others are not as reduced as they are in control subjects. So by, by DHA being there, um, and then having the resolvents and the protectins, you're helping the scavengers do their job is from what I could gather. Yeah. And I don't think we understand the mechanism yet. So I don't think you're far off on this because I think there's a lot more research to come as to actually what the molecular effect is of these things. I think globally, it's an inflammatory, inflammatory reduction. And I think where it's really coming out to do its major work is in actually reducing the effect of NF-kappa B, uh, actually increasing BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor. It's actually trying to regulate and resolve 
the inflammatory process. And I think one of the big pieces of a lot of this stuff that we're going to have to do a deeper dive in eventually, uh, maybe not today, but another time is inflammasome activation. And so inflammasomes are these fireballs that occur anywhere there is a problem inside the body. They coalesce and produce pyrins, which pyros comes from the Greek word for fire. And they come in and say, okay, I've got an issue here. I'm going to burn this up. Well, that burning, again, being useful for inflammation, if it's overburned, it causes a major problem. We saw this with COVID. Inflammasomes got overactivated. COVID was one of the major reasons for our bad outcomes with people in COVID. Well, it turns out one of the down regulators of inflammasome activity happens to be omega-3 fatty acids. So these are multiple multifactorial ways of decreasing the inflammatory response in the human body. And again, if we go back to what we we're talking about earlier, when somebody's hyperinflamed at baseline, you need even more special pro-resolving lipid mediators on board to handle the inflammatory issue. And that's not what we're seeing in humans. Humans are eating less omega-3 fats more omega-6 fats because omega-6 is coming from your seed oils, primarily your vegetable oil, your corn oil, your soy oil, your, um, you know, your, your, your processed oils. And we're getting a ton of those in processed food. So your bank of precursor substrate to arachidonic acid is super high. If you're not eating fish, which a lot of people don't, your bank of omega-3 resolving lipid meters is super low. You have a recipe for disaster. The scales are tipped. And so you have runaway inflammasome activation. And again, this is nothing to do with whether you have a, a, a defect in, let's say, NLRP3, the gene involved in inflammasome activation, you know, which could put you at further risk. So I find this stuff exceedingly fascinating. But if we look at it from just a simple global perspective, we know omega-3 fats have a downstream effect on inflammation. We know that they're resolving inflammation by the names of the words, resolvents, protectants, marisons, right? Mm -hmm. So... I think it's the, the devils in the details of understanding, okay, if we don't have enough of this stuff on board, what can we do to reduce this risk, right? So let's bring it back to concussion. And the animal models looked at this and said, okay, if we give a rat fish oil or omega-3 fats prior to a head injury and looked at the outcome, what happened? Well, they had improved outcomes. If we gave the omega-3 fats post-injury, what happened? Right. And I think you looked into some of this stuff. Do you want to talk about some of those studies? Yeah. Um, there's a ton right now of, of kind of animal studies from that. And it kind of follows what we've been talking about. And if you give uh, those omega threes post injury, we see greatly decreased recovery times um, and, you know, less inflammation, less of the symptoms that come with that. Um, and I say symptoms, they're not asking the lab rats how they feel, but they're, they're, they're looking at markers that are indicative of structural damage. They're looking at markers that are indicative of the inflammation that we talked about earlier. So, um, yeah, and I think they also, in some of the rat studies, a bunch of them look at maze activities. So that's sort of an assessment of cognitive function, sort of, are they brain fogged or not? Exactly. Yeah. Um, and another, another marker that they checked, I thought was interesting was the caspase three. So, which is a, a marker of apoptosis. And that was something that we didn't mention earlier about the pathophys, but whenever you have damaged brain cells, if it's damaged to a certain extent, the body kind of just like 
pulls the, um, I just watched Top Gun. So pulls the ejection button and says, all right, <laughs> this one's a lost cause. Let's go ahead and like contain it and recycle as much as we can, but then get it moved. That, that process is called apoptosis where it's programmed to cell death. Um, and when they, in the animal studies were marked, like measuring the caspase three levels um, with the therapeutic supplementation or the supplementation after the injury, those levels were down. So we're not losing as many brain cells. We don't have as many damaged brain cells to begin with, um, which makes sense. If you think about the way that we've talked about the, the way that we have resolvents and protectants coming from that, but also going back to the structural component where you have a situation where if you're supplementing with DHA, you're giving the body the building blocks that it needs to repair the damaged stuff um, just at baseline. And one thing that I did find was interesting, um, and I'll just touch on this uh, and then maybe move into the, the football study that I thought was really interesting was um, not only are we reducing inflammation, but DHA is actually kind of like preferentially used if available to rebuild brain cells. And so it outcompetes arachidonic acid for integration into those neuronophospholipids, which arachidonic acid is a pro-inflammatory kind of phospholipid acid type deal. Um, that if you don't have DHA, your brain's like, well, I'm going to have to make do with what I got, throw this in there. And then that kind of like feeds a little bit more inflammation, but our body knows what it wants. It knows what it needs. And if you give it, if we give it what it needs, it will use it and the outcomes tend to be better. I just thought that was an interesting little side note. Yeah. Emily precursor protein, I find very fascinating. Um, you know, I know you, you've looked into, you know, what that's all about. And I think APP, you know, is, is involved in Alzheimer's, right? So if you mm -hmm. have repeated injuries and you're getting more amyloid precursor protein, that's a marker of the body almost like clotting off inflammation, right? So I, I, I started to think about this when you look at Alzheimer's disease, $8 billion of, of drug research, trying to find out, is it the amyloid protein? Is it the tau protein? What is it? And none of them have worked. <laughs> I think what it's turning out to prove is that the body's making these proteins as glue to harden over inflammation, very much akin to plaques and heart disease. And so- yeah that's not the problem. The problem again is the upstream inflammation. So we're too far down the river. We're not at the mouth of the river where we, I mean, not at the headwaters of the river, we should be where the mouth of the river. And so I was fascinated to see between the caspase three and the amyloid precursor protein involved in these studies, how much that's related to neurodegenerative disease. This is yeah. so interesting. It's all getting tied together. Mm -hmm. And that like, doesn't even get into the research. So we've done on the rat models with TBIs, but then they've started like supplementing either geriatric patients. They would use controls one with one group that is not diagnosed with Alzheimer's one that is, and both groups saw improved cognitive function, um, with, with DHA supplementation. So it is, it's all like, it's, it's, it's becoming one of these things. It's like, you start looking at one area and then the more you get into it, you're like, wait, this is also connected. Oh, wait, this is also, and your phrase of headwaters of disease is becoming more and more pertinent. The more that, that I dive into clinical <laughs> practice. Yeah. yeah. You know, it, to me, it's like siloed understandings or reductionist medicine is stupid. Now we got to stop reducing everything down. Understanding the pathophysiology is key. 
but it is only key in so much as it allows us to web together how this whole system is causing dysfunction. It is not, there's, at this point, I don't think there's any disease that is one single thing. It's just like, okay, it's a cascade of events that's caused that then leads to all these downstream dysfunctional um, problems that we see. And, and I think this concussion dive is so fascinating just that we're <laughs> already seeing how many things are interlinked. Totally. Totally. So talk about that NCAA trial. Yeah. And this was what really caught my eyes of, as a former NCAA college football player and one that like by the end of my fifth year in college, basically every time that I hit anybody, it hurt. It hurt my arms. It hurt my neck. It hurt my head. And as someone who I think has probably had at minimum three undiagnosed concussions and then definitely had more along the way. I wanted to see what was being done on humans, you know, because as good as rat models are, we need to figure out, you know, how this works with the human brain. Right. Um, so this particular trial, and I'll I'll reference this in the in the show notes, but um they got two teams. Um, one, they gave DHA EPA supplementation throughout the season. Um, and the other one they did not. So super simple kind of like method, but the way that they were measuring whether or not this was actually going to help was they took blood levels of a biomarker called neurofilament light or, or NFL, which is an what is that? one of the recently identified surrogate biomarkers of head trauma. Okay. So, um, Basically, when we have people that have head trauma, they've noticed that this neurofilament light is elevated um, and characteristic of axonal injury. Um, it's just it's another one of those markers of the body going, hey, we've been injured. Help. Um, yeah. yep. And something that's easily measurable and, and stuff. So we have NFL levels um, and they took kind of like baseline measurements before training camp started, um, and then took them at specified time points throughout the year. Okay. Um, and you can get into the nitty gritty. I'll, I'll link the study there. Um, but basically what we see happen is with the control group from pre camp to immediately after camp, which for those of you unfamiliar with that camp is usually two to three weeks right before school starts where you are, working out, practicing, sometimes practicing twice a day, you're just increasing your kind of workload, uh, as well as increasing the amount of times that you're hitting other humans, because hopefully you haven't been doing that prior. Um, but we saw this marked increase in NFL levels in the control group. So the one not getting DHA, and we did see an elevation somewhat, um, in the omega three group. But if you look at the numbers over the course of the whole season, um, the control group at the very end. So that last time point saw a 40 to 45% increase in NFL levels from baseline. Whereas with the omega three group, it was less than 10% increase. Okay. So very, very convincing kind of like protective levels here uh, of the NFL. Um, and now uh, some of the limitations on this is they did not outfit these teams with accelerometers in the helmets to actually figure out who was getting, you know, this level of head trauma, whatever. So we were not, they, they didn't dive into all of that, but they're just like at baseline given two normal football seasons 
people who have elevated levels of omega-3s, in particular DHA, EPA, um, had less significant, statistically significantly less of this biomarker, um, which was honestly enough for me to say if I was running a football team and had the means to give my players that supplement, I would do it. Yeah, and so then that begs the question again, what are the downstream risks of omega-3 fats, right? So if you say, okay, anything we do should have harm understood prior to doing it. So the whole Hippocratic Oath reality, and when you look at omega-3 fats, there's literally almost no downstream risk to omega-3 fats. Um, and so at that point, why not? I don't understand why we wouldn't do this to every kid. And so I always go back to the reality. I would love to see fish first, um, you know, people actually eating a natural source of it because there's other things in fish that are very good for you um, and, and getting away from supplementation if not necessary. But, you know, supplementation also works fine for me. I want to segue a little bit um, because there's something else I really find interesting that I want to talk about in this space, and that's vagal activity. Mm. I think it's really, really interesting when you dive deep into the world of sympathetic and parasympathetic overload, right? So you get a traumatic brain injury. That's a sympathetic response. So that's your fight or flight mode gets kicked in. You're going all, you know, balls to the wall, taking care of what's going on until it heals itself, right? Well, vagal activity is about parasympathetic. That's your relaxation, your digestion, your breathing, your heart rate, all that's being mediated by the vagus nerve from the brain down. Well, it turns out the vagus nerve also promotes special prolipid mediator production. Interesting. <laughs> Not surprising, but interesting. And then traumatic brain injury causes vagal dysfunction. Hmm. So it is all tied together and vagal dysfunction can lead to something called migrating motor complex dysfunction. So your peristaltic activity of your GI tract. So the squeezing and moving of the colon, the small intestine, everything is regulated by this thing called the migrating motor complex, which is innervated by the vagal nerve. And so if you get hit in the head pretty hard, you may actually have dysfunction of the migrating motor complex, which then can reduce normal peristaltic activity, which then unfortunately can increase dysbiosis, which then can increase inflammation. And we've talked about microbiome stuff ad nauseum on this podcast. And you and I, I know, have talked a ton about this, but it's incredible how it's all tied together, right? So if your vagal motor outflow is broken, you're going to have decreased motion of the peristaltic activity, which increases the potential for dysbiosis, which increases the potential for translocation of bacterial cell wall debris, which can get to the brain and can, can cause all this stuff. Like it's just crazy. Especially that if, especially if we have leaky gut and increased zonulin, like Fasano was talking about and yeah. Yeah. And then <laughs> throw it and then throw in, you know, Rick Johnson's work with fructose and hyperglycemia, right? Well, it turns out that, you know, vagal motor outflows also decreased by insulin and what drives insulin right? Hyperglycemia. Yeah. Hyperglycemia. Standard American diet, which is also driving. I mean, so it, it all keeps coming back to the same problem, upstream risk of bad diets, bad decisions, bad choices, all right? We can parse through all this pathophys and science, but just go back to the basics, folks. And then the other one is sleep deprivation decreases brain cleaning through the glymphatics, right? So if you're sleep deprived, you're not cleaning your brain very well. So if you're chronically sleep deprived pre-injury, that's bad. But what does traumatic brain injury do? It decreases sleep function. 
right? So TBI also decreases the clearing of the brain. So you need the special pro-resolving lipid mediators to start to help clean up the inflammatory process. Otherwise, everything is going to get worse. So sleep is big into this, right? Forget about if you're taking vaping, toxins, all that other stuff. <laughs> I just, I think this stuff is so fascinating to me as you chose this topic and I started diving a little deeper. I love it. I think it's so cool. All right. So let's segue again and, and let's talk about, you know, giving supplementation to people or the foods. What would you recommend for athletes pre-injury and post-injury? And I'll give you my opinion after you give me yours. Yeah. Um, I, I'm not a complicated person. I think that you should eat as much fish as you can get your hands on um, and that you can afford. And that they've actually, the World Olympic Committee and some more international kind of like athletic organizations have done a couple of studies and found that the omega-3 levels in like professional athletes is well below what would be recommended for just cardiovascular health, much less the concussive risk based on different combat sports and stuff like that. So if you can, if you're an athlete, so whether you're, I mean, middle school, high school, if you're in a sport that your, your risk of head injury is high, um, find you some good salmon, find you some good fatty fish, um, and make that kind of a regular part of your diet. The reason that we talk about supplementation with food and or other supplements is that we can, our bodies do make DHA and EPA from alpha linoleic acid, but that conversion process is like incredibly inefficient. Um, and it's just a lot easier and better if you can just give your body those things. Uh, so it doesn't have to work through it. Um, but that's, that's kind of like my practical kind of side side of things. I know there's other ways that you can get omega threes. I think like nuts, um, legumes would have some of it, but that's, I love minimal. fish. Yeah. It's minimal minimal too. It's very, very small amounts. And, and so for me, cold water fish is the key. So salmon, mackerel, sardines, uh, you know, all the guys that are sort of cold water and the smaller fish is better. And that's only because, mercury and heavy metals is concentrated in fat and the bigger the fish the more you're going to get toxicants into the system and mercury is not good for the brain if you ever remember the alice in wonderland story mad as a hatter mm. the mad hatter was mad because in the felting process of making hats in the old days they used mercury and so the mercury was absorbed through the skin and over time hatters who made hats would get brain disorders from mercury toxicity and so the less fish you consume the more likely you are, um, the less large fish are you consume, the more likely you are not to be exposed to heavy metals and toxicants that are actually going to impede your brain function. So smaller fish better, plus it's more sustainable in general. Um, so I'm a much bigger fan of that at least two, three times a week. Um, I do a lot of canned stuff. Personally, I love Trader Joe's. I go get Trader Joe's um, trout. I get Trader Joe's salmon. I get um, Trader Joe's mackerel. Um, that's my go-to. I, I like some sardines, not my best favorite fish, but I, I do eat some sardines, especially if they're high quality. Um, there's a company called Vital Choice. Um, I have no um, financial interest in anything. So any everything I say in general is, is safe from a financial incentive perspective. So Vital Choice Seafood, quite expensive, but really good fish, especially they have a Ventresca tuna that I think is out, absolutely out of this world. So fish, I think is a great idea. Um, you know, clearly omega-3 
from animals should be primarily grass-fed meats and, and again, not a corn-fed animal because you're getting too much omega-6 that way, which is pro-inflammatory and going against what you want. So that, that's sort of it. And for, for supplementation, you know, I, I, I know you're not treating patients yet. You will be soon, um, you know, being in your fourth year of med school now, but I know we've talked about it before. I love Barleans, B-A-R-L-E-A-N-S. Their fish oil is fantastic. I like Nordic Naturals and Carlson's are the three brands that I think are the best. I think Barleen's is the easiest because it tastes the best. It doesn't taste too fishy. Um, Dose-wise, did you find anywhere any information on dosing? Um, So World Health Organization, um, and this is not specific to athletes, um, but they this is from 2009 you're looking at EPA plus DHA to be anywhere from 250 milligrams to 200 grams a day. That is a massive kind of swath. Um, but there is Barrett talked a little bit about, um, the suggested stuff. Did you find anything? Yeah. I mean, you know, I've looked through this a bunch. I know the folks are using anywhere between 1500 milligrams up to 17,000 milligrams. Um, the range is pretty high. Uh, I tend to use 3000 milligrams in my teenagers who get concussed. That's the population that gets concussed the most. Okay. So, um, 3000, if I know their diet is atrocious, I'll actually go up to five, 6,000. Um, and so really, but then I'm also counseling them immediately at that point, no, res- no refined carbohydrates, no refined fats, no junk food for the next six weeks, right. To heal the system probiotics. We do a lot of that stuff. Yeah. And Um, that, that is definitely something that like, as I was going through my rotations, I was like, if we're not treating this with nutrition, we're doing such a disservice apart from the rest and the brain rest and helping them with like academic stuff. But like, we've got to start doing nutritional therapy as soon as we get them into the office. Yeah. And I also consider other supplements like alpha lipoic acid and CoQ10 mitochondrial salvage mechanisms, right? So the mitochondria being like you said, challenged very big in the beginning with this huge hypermetabolic state post-concussion, using up tons of glucose, putting out tons of oxygen radicals. So supporting the mitochondria is a really good idea. And mm. so ALA and alpha-poic acid and, and CoQ10, I think are two really good choices there. Um, and then, you know, some people like berberine. Uh, I've seen berberine a good bit um, used. I think berberine has very good properties in Helping with dysglycemia also has microbiome polarity um, improvement factors. It's also been been shown to have Th1 modulating effects for the for immune polarity. So I love berberine, um, and and so those are the three that I think of when I when it comes to concussion patients. Gotcha. Any other last thoughts on concussion before we go into helmets? Uh, no, uh, that my last thought was as far as like, if you're wanting to help prevent concussions, it's the diet things that we've talked about and wear a stinking helmet when you ride your bike or your scooter, or your skateboard and whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, okay. So talking about helmets, this very brief, um, something that I just found was interesting. Um, when I was looking for a cycling helmet recently, um, if parents, if you're looking for, uh, whether or not this helmet is good or bad or whatever, any helmet is going to be good. But if you really want to like optimize, um, go check out the Virginia tech. Again, I have no affiliation to Virginia tech. I think Dr. M has a little bit more of a connection there. If I'm not mistaken, were you Virginia tech? UVA. 
UVA. Okay, sorry. So I brought up the uh, enemy there. <laughs> but uh, Virginia Tech has developed kind of what's become the gold standard when it comes to helmet safety ratings. And uh, a, across a number of fields, they do equestrian, they do winter sports, they do bicycle, they do football helmets, they do soccer head protective, all of it. And they have different protocols for each based on the activities that those helmets are designed for. Um, but I dug into a little bit of their protocols and I won't bore you with them, but basically they don't simply rate them based on direct impact uh, reduction. They take into account rotational uh, damage. Um, and that's honestly, if you're not taking in the rotational component of impact, then you're doing a disservice um, to kind of rating helmets. So uh, what I have started recommending to patients uh, who are you know, entering whether they do competitive downhill mountain biking was the couple of the kids that we saw when I was on service. Um, and then as fall and summer ramp up and we start talking more about football, um, go, if you have the chance to buy your own helmet, which is less football because it's kind of whatever the school gives you. Um, but take a minute and go check out the Virginia tech, uh, safety ratings. Um, and in particular, if you're looking at, at bike helmets, if you can find something that is MIPS equipped, M-I-P-S, which is an acronym, and that's a particular company who designed kind of the first mechanism within helmets to help reduce rotational trauma, rotational velocity. It, uh, it allows the outer shell of the helmet to slip around a little bit um, and negate some of the rotational velocity. Um, I would highly, highly recommend anytime that you're going to get a bike helmet or a skateboard helmet, try to find one that is MIPS equipped. And again, I have no financial connection to either of those two, whether Virginia tech or the MIPS company. Um, but they MIPS, have MIPS stands for multi-directional impact protection system, yep. which gets to your discussion of rotational forces. Yeah. Yeah. So that's my spiel on, on helmets. Um, I think they do good work over at Virginia tech and go check them out. Cool. All right. Well, I think we've nailed and discussed uh, concussions, omega-3 fats pretty deeply here. I think we've covered all the things that I wanted to get across. Are there any last minute thoughts you have to share with everybody or just uh, get your fish, take care of yourself, go upstream, stop being at the mouth of the river and move on. Yeah. And enjoy your summer. Get out there and, and be active. Love it. All right, Andrew. Round two in the books. Appreciate everything. Absolutely. I enjoyed it. Thank you for thank you for creating the platform. Take care. So I hope you enjoyed that discussion on concussions, omega-3 fats specifically, neuroinflammation resolution, and also just the, the format of the journal club. In an upcoming newsletter, I'm going to go a little bit deeper in some of that M1, M2 macrophage polarity and how that makes such a big difference in neuroinflammation, the lifestyle factors that drive it. You know, again, if you think about what drives the immune system to be dysfunctional towards pathogen killing, as we discussed ad nauseum with COVID over the past two years, it's Americanized foods, right? The processed, refined, carbohydrate based fat laden foods all coupled together, you know, in, in driving hormonal immune dysregulation, it's sleep deprivation, it's mental stress that is 
chronic, and it's also a lack of exercise or conversely, too much exercise. All of those issues, lifestyle-wise, can drive dysfunctions in immune polarity, leading to dysfunctions in systemic and neuroinflammation. In the upcoming newsletter, there will be some links to the articles, uh, three of them out of Frontiers in Immunology and Frontiers in Nutrition, fantastically written, looking at this topic. So if you want to go on a deeper dive, they will be there. Outside of that, I just hope this was, uh, this was useful for you. And we'll continue to head down this path. If you would like to put in a topic for the Journal Club, please head to newsletter at salisburypediatrics.com and give me some ideas, and Andrew and I will tackle them in the coming year. As always, share this if you liked it. Review it in Apple Podcasts if you liked it. And just in general, have a great day. Uh, Remember to hug those kids, and thank you. Now for the disclaimer, the information provided in this audiocast newsletter is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue. It does not constitute the formation of a provider-patient relationship. Have a great day.